And most of us, please take your Bibles and open them to Psalm chapter 51. In many ways, we have sung the truths of Psalm 51 together through the different songs that we sang this morning. I hope your heart has been encouraged with those truths, that your head and your heart were engaged in worship to the Lord together with God's people in song this morning. Psalm 51 is perhaps the most well-known of what are called the penitential psalms, the psalms that convey the heart of somebody who is penitent. It was written by King David. It's attributed to him as the, as the uh, title phrase uh, indicates, and it's entitled as a psalm of David, written sometime after Nathan the prophet confronted King David about his sin of covetousness, adultery, and conspiracy to murder. You can read those events in the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And so I'd encourage you, if you aren't familiar with that, go ahead and and give that some time to read through that. In case you're not familiar with that story, I know many of us in here would be, but in case you aren't, I'd like just to give a five-minute recap of the events that lead up or kind of stand behind Psalm 51. We're not going to spend long on that. Just a quick summary of those events to help us understand, I think, more the richness of what God has for us in Psalm chapter 51. So back in 2 Samuel 11, we're told that during a time when the kings ordinarily would go to war, King David did not. He remained behind. Late one afternoon, David was on the rooftop. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. He discovered her name was Bathsheba, that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. A little footnote here, Uriah was somebody well known to David. Uriah was one of the few, one of the 30 plus men that had been with David when Saul was was pursuing David. This would have been one that had been with David through the thick and thin of the worst that David had experienced. He was one of those loyal, stalwart friends, warrior friends that had been with David through that that hardship. Uriah was serving uh, at the present time during the story was written, uh, was serving on the battlefield, um, fighting against Israel's enemies. David sends for Bathsheba, sleeps with her. She discovered that she's pregnant and she sends a message to David notifying him of that. David begins the scheme in what appears to be an effort to cover up his adultery and give a plausible explanation for Bathsheba's pregnancy. David calls Uriah out of the battlefield to come home to give a report and ostensibly to give a report on what's going on in the battlefield. He gets the report from Uriah and and then uh, David sends Uriah home saying, thanks for the report, glad to hear how things are going. Go home, enjoy the pleasures of home, enjoy your wife. But Uriah was a man of principle and... uh, He refused. He didn't think it was honorable for him to go home and enjoy the comforts of home while Israel and its armies were were sleeping in tents out in the battlefield. Well, David didn't give up. He asked Uriah to stay one more night. That night, he continues to talk with Uriah and gets Uriah drunk, hoping that in his intoxicated state, Uriah would stumble home and sleep with Bathsheba, and therefore Bathsheba's pregnancy would have an explanation that would alleviate David of a scandal. But even in his intoxicated state, Uriah did not veer from his principles. And he uh, did not go home to his wife. And so David sends uh, Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter that he wrote to Joab, the commander of the armies. In that letter, David tells Joab to put Uriah where the, the most aggressive fighting was taking place, then to withdraw troops to leave Uriah exposed to the enemy forces 
And so Uriah goes back to the battlefield with the sad irony, not knowing he's carrying the letter of his own death sentence. Joab receives the letter and carries out King David's wishes. They go and fight. The troops are pulled back. Uriah is exposed to the uh, enemy forces. He is killed. Joab writes a letter to David to notify David of the loss of Israeli troops in this conflict and knows that if David is angry at that, Joab tells the messenger, tell King David, if David gets angry, King David gets angry, tell King David this, Uriah the Hittite is dead. He knew that that would silence David's objection. And that's what happened. The messenger is sent. The messenger tells David what happened. And David says, I'm sorry to hear that, but this is what happens in war. Well, time carries on. Second Samuel chapter 12, a guy named Nathan, he's a prophet of God, comes to King David and tells King David a terrible story of something that supposedly happened in the kingdom about a rich shepherd and a poor shepherd. A rich shepherd who had many flocks and herds of animals, a poor shepherd who had one beloved lamb. The rich shepherd had an out-of-town guest visit him and instead of slaughtering an animal from one of his flocks, one of his herds, to uh, give a meal for this traveling guest, the rich shepherd takes the single lamb from the poor shepherd, slaughters that single beloved lamb to give as meal for this out-of-town guest. David was incensed. He was outraged, had anger about the injustice that he had just heard about. And Nathan turns the story and tells David, you are the man. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David says this to Nathan, I have sinned against Jehovah. Nathan said to David, Jehovah also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Those two verses and the story that led up to those two verses in 2 Samuel are the backdrop of what we find in Psalm 51. It's what lies behind the words that are of a heartbroken, remorseful, repentant man who is confessing sin before God. Psalm 51 is a roadmap then of how a sinner relates to God. We get a snapshot of what confession is, of what repentance is. We explore the depths of God's greatness and his righteousness and his mercy and his steadfast love. And it's really my hope and prayer that in our time together this morning in Psalm 51, that our hearts will be warmed again toward God. And if you're not a Christian, it is our prayer that your heart would be warmed toward God to know him as Lord and Savior. So the sermon today, I don't have a clear outline for you. I apologize for that. It, this was perplexing. I wrestled with this much this week in preparing. What happened, and there's ways to, cap, to organize it, and many have done that, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not faulting that, but it seemed to me like I was trying to, it's like somebody is singing a song and then you're trying to write an outline of the song. What we have here in Psalm 51 is this song of confession, this heartbroken plea from a heart, and it felt awkward to try to outline this and put it in a schematic. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is just simply give us a guided meditation from Psalm 51 with our dependence on God to use his word to warm our hearts, convict us where we must have it, and deepen our enjoyment of God while simultaneously deepening our hatred of sin. So we're going to walk through this kind of section by section, verses by verses, if you're okay with that. Verses 1 and 2, we're kind of walk through this this way. I think what's interesting in verses 1 and 2 is how David begins with heartfelt petitions. He's requesting something from God. He starts this without, he doesn't say, forgive me. He doesn't say, God, I've sinned. I mean, he gets there, yes, but he starts with these words of petition to God for God's mercy, 
for his steadfast love and for God's, again, abundant mercy. I think what's interesting here is that David knows that even before he can confess something to God, that God would hear his confession at all to begin with is an expression of God's mercy, of God's love. Those words there that that are repeated in our text when it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Those words, mercy, steadfast love, and then back to mercy, are describing that David is asking God to have mercy on him and that have pity. And the word steadfast love is that covenant word of love that's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe God's fiercely loyal love to his covenant people. And then back to word mercy again is this idea of compassion. Have a heart that is pitifully compassionate towards him in his needy state. When God hears us confess our sin, that is God's mercy, his steadfast love and compassion that is being poured out toward us. And I know as Christians, we talk a lot about God's love, God's mercy and God's compassion. We sang about it again this morning, which is good for us to do. But what can happen is we can become familiar with those realities so that we start to take them for granted. But the reality is is that God is not obligated to listen to sinners. He obligated himself by entering a covenant of love with sinners so that when we cry out to him with confession, God hears us. It's amazing. There are probably famous people in the world that if you tried to call, they would not even answer the phone. They'd look at your number and go, I don't know that number, and they would silence it. God doesn't do that to sinners. Why? Not because you're so important and, and, and powerful. No, it's because he's entered covenant of love with you. He chose to give you his ear to hear your confessions. And David understands this freshly, which is why he is crying out with desperate need before God to have mercy and compassion upon him. The foundation of God's covenant love is the grounds upon which David cries out to God. He can't demand God of this, but he's appealing to God's covenant of love to him as what will give him an audience with God to hear him. Which, friends, it reminds us of the gospel. That God, in love, made a way for sinners to cry out for mercy. Well, what David wants and needs most is what we all truly want and need most. And we forget this. We live in a world that is trying to give us what we, and trying to convince us, here's what you need, here's what you want. This is what's going to satisfy. Whether it's going somewhere or accomplishing something or purchasing something or achieving something, that's what our world is promoting for us to pursue after to find fulfillment in life. But Psalm 51 reminds us that's not what we need most. Look at verse 2. What we need most is this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's what we need most. These words describe a full cleansing. This idea of wash is a descriptive word. It was a word used to describe the rough treatment that a garment would be given with somebody trying to remove a, a, a deep stain. It's like moms, if you're trying to get grass stains out of the knees on the kids' jeans, right? You're rubbing that. You're trying to spot clean it. You're, you're giving that, that garment harsh treatment to remove the stain. This is what David is asking God to do with the stain of sin in his life. David wants God to thoroughly remove it. No matter how difficult, how painful, how rough the treatment might be, he's submitting himself to God to, to work the miracle and remove the stain. Which, by the way, if you will not cry out to God to remove the stain of, of your sin, what is your strategy to deal with your sin? Maybe you're not a Christian here and you're thinking, oh, David, he's so wrapped up around what? Come on, 
big deal. He did this. How many people did it really hurt? And friend, if, if, your, if your approach to life is kind of belittling sin or casting it aside, what is your strategy then to deal with the burden of guilt that is in your conscience for your sin against God? David knew there was only one place to go. I was kind of thinking of, there's, there's times when we, you might hear a friend or maybe a loved one is diagnosed with some particular illness and there's particular spots in the nation where there's specialty places that deal with you know, lung cancer or, or this kind of cancer or that kind of cancer. There's specialty places that are renowned for their ability to help with trying to cure people of this. God is the only place you can go to be cured of sin. That's where David turns. Sin doesn't disappear magically. God, David knows that God is the one that needs to work the miracle. So then in verses 3 through 5, what we have here is the main part of David's confession, his admission, his admission of guilt, when he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He was living in a constant awareness of his sin. And this, by the way, is one mark of true confession and repentance that are taking place. When we dismiss our sin or diminish it, when we try to, to remove the reality of our sin, which I think David must have been doing for months while he was scheming, while he was trying to pull out this plan to, to, to get Uriah to trick him into this and then eventually carrying out the plan of conspiracy for murder when all that was happening, it seems like he was just trying to look past the sin and around it, diminishing it. But now he can't look around it at all. It's ever before him. Verse 4 is a verse that has caused some people trouble. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sometimes we scratch our heads at that, right? We might be thinking, well, how could David say that? He seems he's cheapening the victims of the story, which are Bathsheba, right? They made David a man of power and influence. And, of course, Uriah. I mean, here Uriah is out there serving King David by, work, by serving as, as a captain in his army, putting his life at risk, and he lost his life because of David's treachery. What about them? I mean, didn't David sin against them? Yes, he did. This verse isn't saying he didn't. What this verse is highlighting is that sin is ultimately always against God. There's always an upstream to sin. Anytime some person is sinned against in that way, it's because ultimately it's a sin, which means it's against God. That's the benchmark. Think of it this way. I think I heard it described with this idea, this analogy. I'm, I'm borrowing this word picture. It was helpful for me to understand what's going on here when David is writing about that what he did is really wrongs against people, but ultimately a wrong against God. Sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your, a country, right? If you try to overthrow your own country, you could harm or kill individuals in that effort. Stealing, lying, treachery, even murder. You might, you might go through all sorts of that type of of, of uh, sin in your efforts of treason. But you would ultimately, when caught, you would ultimately be tried for treason because you've betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. Sure, there's other crimes involved in that crime of treason, but treason would be the capital offense that you'd be tried for as well. And that's what's going on here with this idea of sin. When David recognizes that his sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, his sin against the nation of Israel as their chosen leader, he recognized that ultimately it was against God. Which, by the way, this isn't the first time this idea has come up in the scriptures. In the story of Joseph, remember that? And Joseph, when he was elevated to power and he was ruling there in, the, in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife solicits him and he says, how could I do this great sin against God? Joseph understood again 
that all that, that his relationship with image bearers was a reflection of his ultimate relationship with the one that they're bearing image of, God himself. So the rest of Psalm of verse 4, when he admits that his sin is against God, ultimately, then the rest of verse 4 reads like this in the Christian Standard Bible. It says, you, pass, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. That's what's being said here in the end. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David understands that God has passed judgment on David's actions and David comes out guilty in God's eyes. And David knows that God's right. That God has not overreacted. He's not gotten the facts misinformed. He's not, he, he, God isn't like thinking something too serious on what David has done. David admits that God is right. And so in verse 5, David admits that his sin is a result of his sinful condition as a human. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not something, again, these aren't words disparaging his mother. These are words describing his condition as a human being, a person who has a depraved nature. This is the doctrine of Christian, the Christian doctrine of depravity, where the scriptures teach that all people everywhere are born with a nature of sin. In other words, it's not that we sin and then become sinners. We sin because we are born sinners. That's what the scriptures teach. And David is admitting this. He realizes that it wasn't just a quick lapse of judgment and oops, but there's a fountain in his heart of evil that he cannot, be, he cannot escape apart from God working the miracle of salvation. It's a hopeless condition on our own. Just like a fish can't stop being a fish, a bird can't stop being a bird, a sinner can't stop being a sinner on their own. What re, what's required is the miraculous work of God in salvation. And so this is why David prayed to God, because David is putting all hope of restoration with God and all hope for his growth in godliness in God's hands. Which, by the way, it is good for Christians to remember that we have a deep doctrine of sin. You might kind of scratch your head at that and go, whoa, what do you mean? Which means this, that sin always breaks our hearts. It always grieves us. It should. But it ought not surprise us. Which means that of all people in the world, Christians are the most well-equipped to handle sin. And I want to encourage us with that as a church family. That we as a church family understand that we are sinners saved by grace, which means that when sin shows up within our church family, within us, we are the most well-equipped to do war against that with one another. That we have a God who, David has described this, God who is steadfast in love, a God who is merciful, a God who has abundant mercy to do what? To cleanse us from sin. What we want to be as a church family that helps one another walk out of sin into the joy of the salvation of God again. And so what David does in verse 6 is, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 6 is in, in a verse, kind of more of what, was, what we learned in Psalm 50 last week, when, when David was admitted, when the psalmist was admitting, God isn't after the external actions of just empty religion. And which, by the way, verse 6 reminds us that what is often our, our, our action, 
of response to sin, our natural responses often can be, I'm going to really be good now, God. I'm going to really, you know, read my Bible now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to attend church faithfully. I'm going to start giving to the church. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this stuff to kind of, we, we, we feel like we can kind of work our way out of guilt. But we can't. That is not how inward purity is found. Behold, God delights in truth where? In the inward being, not just in external actions. God is the one who must teach us wisdom where? In our inner person. And so what David means here is he realizes he has failed in outward moral sin because of his inner person of sin. And he knows his greatest need is deep within him. And that is true for us. We always sin out of this internal, deep desire for delight. That's what led David astray. He believed, he wrongfully believed, that sin with Bathsheba would be of greater delight than relationship with God and obedience to his creator. He believed the delight of intimacy with her would satisfy and fulfill him. But he was wrong because here we read his words, his words of heartbroken confession and repentance. I wonder what false promises of sinful delight God's wisdom must set us free from. What lies of our world are taking root in our hearts and causing discontent so that we find ourselves pushing against God's good law, God's good words? God is always working for our joy. We're told that he is, he is preparing a place for us that words can't even describe. And yet we doubt him again and again. We're just like David. David. What we need is for God to teach us wisdom where? In the secret of our heart so that we would treasure and embrace the truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. In verses 7 through 13, hold some of the greatest riches and hope for us as we do war against sin as God's people. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, those words like hyssop don't make sense to our modern ears. We're thinking, you know, it's unlikely that any Christian in here has used words like that in a prayer of confession this past week. What is David talking about here? I believe that the words hyssop here, although it doesn't make sense to our modern ears, would have made great sense to David's ears and those that lived when he did because they would have been thinking about what is written in Leviticus 14, Numbers 19, that this was the procedure that a leper would go through to be reinstated with the, with the covenant people. Instead of being cast out of the camp of Israel, a leper who was cleansed would go through this ritual with the priest and the priest would take hyssop to signify symbolically that they've been cleansed from their uncleanness and able to be brought back into relationship with the people of God. And this is what David is wanting to happen to him. He realizes the depth of his uncleanness from sin is like he's a leper. But God can clean him. God can cleanse him. God can restore him. And this is what he's crying out for. Only God has the power to do that. So, again, I want to make sure that we don't understand Psalm 51 as an obligation, as if, hey, you all are sinners, get busy doing Psalm 51. Here we go. Obeying Psalm 51. Friends, Psalm 51 is not an obligation. There is nothing better for us than Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is not an obligation, as if we have to confess and repent as a spiritual duty Psalm 51 shows us that confession is the key to unlocking the joy of forgiveness. Psalm 51 invites us to confess our sin, to repent of our sins so that we can enjoy God in greater ways. We can enjoy life. 
Notice the joy that David longs for. He said, well, prove it to me from Psalm 51. I will. Look at verse 8. Look at for the joy that David longs for here. Look at verse 10. Notice the peace that he craves for. It's hard to be joyful when you're anxious. Anxiety just, just pushes joy right out. Joy is one of those things where your soul can, can relish when your soul is at peace. He longs for this peace. Verse 10, renew a right spirit. Right? There's this bad spirit in him churning. He talks about how he has had his, it's been like his bones have been broken within him. In verse 11, look at the intimacy that David yearns to experience when he talks about don't cast away your presence from me. He wants to be in the presence of God. Think of two lovers that are separated from, from you know, maybe they're separated by distance. And they long to be back in the presence of one another. This is the longing that David has in his heart. In verse 12, David returns to this theme of joy again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit against this willing gladness. You've all had it, right? Maybe where you've asked a a kid to to come along for some sort of exciting trip and fine, I'll go with. Well, that's not what you want. You want them to come joyfully, willingly to enjoy what you're offering them. It's like, hey, kids, get in the car. We're going to go have ice cream. Fine. No. David doesn't want that relationship with God. He is yearning for, he, he knows, he's tasted this, and he wants this back. And so what he's, what he's pursuing here in Psalm 51 is not obligation or duty. It's enjoyment. God is the one that holds the keys of joy. He is the one that holds the keys of fulfillment and delight. Delight that's better than illicit affairs that the world is offering as what you want. David knows this and so he's confessing. There's an eagerness in his heart to restore, to have the joy of salvation restored back to him. What does all this mean? Well, I think he realizes how he's exchanged the all-satisfying deep intimacy and fulfillment found in God for these temporary pleasures of sin. And this is where we all would do a good, good job to kind of do a, just a hard stop. Ask ourselves, where have we been led astray to think that the all-satisfying deep intimacy and fulfillment of life is found in sin? In fact, David wants cleansing. Why? Because he knows that true enjoyment of God can only be done, only be experienced by those who have been cleansed. Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why are these pure in heart people blessed? Why are they happy? They shall see God. That's what we need, friends. But how can anyone ever hope to be clean enough or pure enough to rightly relate to a holy God, right? We know we can't achieve that, and David knows that too, and that's why he prays for God to work the miracle of cleansing. Verses 13 through 17, right? Have you ever wondered what happens after confession? Maybe you've had that in like a relationship conversation where you're, you're kind of hashing things out in a conversation, you're working it out, and you kind of understand one another's perspective. You've apologized, you've, you've, you've forgiven and been forgiven, and they kind of like, now what? Do we just like go do the dishes now? Or like, what do we do next? You ever wondered what, how does this work with your relationship with God? Verses 13 and following, I think, show us a snapshot of that. David responds to the forgiveness that God offers with this. He, he pledges a promise to God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is a man who's received the lavish mercies of God because of God's steadfast love and compassion. He's been cleansed from the stain of this sin and David wants others to experience the same deliverance. 
David isn't out there making excuses. He's not spinning something up to make it look not as bad as it was. David says, you know what? I want others to know and hear this, so I'm going to be telling others so they can taste and see of God's goodness the same way. Which, by the way, as a church family, this is what we get to do. We are not the righteous telling the unrighteous how to become like us. Wrong. We are sinners who have received dump truck loads of God's mercy and grace so that what we can do is tell other sinners who are just like us, you need to taste of God's mercy and grace too. You want delight and soul satisfaction in the deepest recesses of your heart? Do you want wisdom in the inner person that will satisfy you in ways that the world can never live up to? Come to Christ. Come to God. But notice what David promises to sing about in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That caught me off guard. I wouldn't have put that word there. The word I'm expecting is sing aloud of God's mercy, sing aloud of God's compassion, or his forgiveness, or his redemption, or whatever other word there. I wouldn't have put God's righteousness because... When we think of righteousness, we often think of God expecting us to fulfill an obligation. God's righteousness is that God has God fulfilled his obligation. He is righteous. Nobody can accuse him or judge him for not fulfilling his obligation. And he's holy. But David promises to sing about God's unrighteousness. God's righteousness, excuse me, God's righteousness. Why? I believe the answer is found in the fact that it is God's righteousness that we need most. Now hang in here with me. I'm not dismissing his love, his mercy, his compassion, not at all. The reason that we receive God's mercy and compassion and love is because he is a God who is righteous. Because God promised to save and redeem sinners. What does that require of God? Mercy and compassion and love. So why then are sinners saved? Because God fulfills his obligation to save sinners because he has put into place this plan of salvation, this wonderful story of redemption and forgiveness. And by the way, the gospel story is all about God's righteousness. And our world would like to put, you know, most everybody's familiar with John 3.16, right? It shows up everywhere. I mean, when stadiums used to have people in them, there'd be somebody holding up a sign, John 3.16, right? Maybe you were one of those people. It's a great verse. For God so loved the world, I'm not diminishing God's love. God's love is definitely, definitely involved in the gospel story, for sure. But friends, when you read through the book of Romans, which is all about God's saving plan, the word you're going to be hearing over and over and over again is righteousness. I'll prove it to you. Not through the whole book of Romans, okay? Just two verses, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news of God saving sinners if you're not familiar with that word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay? Describe this power. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what Paul does for the majority of what comes next in this this letter is he proves how how the salvation of God, this gospel message, is God giving his righteousness to people by grace through faith, not through works. What we need most is God's righteousness. 
That's why David says, I'm going to sing aloud of your righteousness, God. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, there's many places we could go. But another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God. Christians can celebrate the righteousness of God in an even greater way than David could because David is, is celebrating the righteousness of God as a, as a whole kind of doctrine, a reality, but we celebrate the righteousness of God in a person. His name is Jesus. We celebrate the righteousness of God toward us because Colossians chapter 2, you who were dead in your sins, God made alive with Jesus. How did God do this? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the actions of a righteous God. Have your sins been nailed to the cross? This is what David is crying for in Psalm 51. He doesn't have the cross in mind, so to speak, because he doesn't have that fulfilled revelation, but we do. Have your sins been nailed to the cross? Can you sing today of the righteousness of God that has been given to you, not through works or merit, but but by his sheer, decisive acts of grace? That's what we get to sing about. In fact, the gospel is about God's righteousness in that saving way, but now as Christians, again, if I can just pull this thread a little bit longer, hang in here with me, it gets even better because we get to celebrate God's righteousness in another way. The Apostle John writes about it in some of the clearest ways. The Apostle John celebrated the righteousness of God toward Christians in his first letter, which is all about the gospel. And I know we did a series through the letters of John. Seems like a long time ago now, though, doesn't it? But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, here's a verse many of you probably have memorized. If we confess our sins, that's Psalm 51. He is, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Which, by the way, that's describing God's righteousness. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So basically, 1 John 1, 9 is saying this. If we confess, God is righteous to forgive us of our unrighteousness. God's covenant of steadfast love toward his people makes it so that we as his children, when we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us. This is amazing. Which is why John says in the next chapter, just a few verses later, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And David shouldn't have sinned. Right? Psalm 51. But he did. So now what? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And look at the word describing Jesus Christ. The righteous. Friends, Psalm 51 reminds us, shows us, What we need most in life is the righteousness of God. Not a self-made righteousness, which, by the way, sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion is offering, you follow this step, this plan. If you achieve this ascension, this progress, then you will ascend, then you will achieve, then you will possess this great life to come. Christianity turns that upside down and says, you can try as hard as you want, you'll fail every time. So God sent Jesus to do what you can't. You can't earn it, but you can receive it as a gift. And we know that's through Jesus. Friends, Psalm 51 reminds us what we need most is the righteousness of God. So then, in what do you celebrate? 
as a Christian? What gives you a sense of well-being and confidence before God as a child? Is it your recent track record of righteous acts? Or is it the lavish mercies of God's compassion, his steadfast love that he pours out to you even though you don't deserve it and continue to fail him? But yet when you turn to him in confession, he is glad to forgive, eager to hear your confessions and give you more grace. So, so much so that Paul writes about it this way, where there's a lot of sin, where sin abounds, God's grace overabounds that sin. In Psalm 51, verse 16, David knows that what makes a relationship with God isn't external actions of religion. That's what he's writing in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He knows that he cannot impress God. He can't just do religious acts to to make up for his sins. He needs the gift of God's righteousness. He needs internal transformation made possible by the saving acts of God. In verse seven, the sac- verse seventeen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. I find it interesting, and this is not interesting. It's obvious, right? Because the, God is so much different than our world. But the very things that our world despises, God delights in. The very things our world despises, God delights in. God delights. He comes near to the broken spirit. He comes near to the broken and contrite heart. So Christian friend, maybe what you need most today isn't an entertaining distraction from life, but to come to God with a contrite heart of confession. Maybe what you need most today is to rest in the peace and confidence of knowing God delights in a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Well, these final two verses might seem like an abrupt subject change. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And like, how do we go from personal confession to like building schematics? I, what's going on here? This, this change, right? Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings when then bulls will be offered on your altar. I doubt any of us have ended a prayer confession like that. It's so abrupt, some scholars wonder if this was added later, like in the, in the, in the exilic time when there was a longing for God to restore Israel back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. It's possible. I don't think it's necessary, though. I think what's happening here in verse 18 and 19 is David knows that as king of Israel, in this era of what's happening with God's people and the redemptive plan of God, that in that time, David as king of Israel, God's blessing on the nation was often attached to the king, to the leadership. There was a very close connection. It's, it's, it's different in now. We, we live in a different age. We live in a New Testament era with the completed gospel, with the indwelling spirit. So please don't get caught off, caught in, you know, running down those, those lines of thinking present day. But in this day when it was written, there was a close connection there. The proof of that is read through Kings and Chronicles. And over and over again, the, the, the blessing of the people of God was tied to whether the king of Israel followed God and obeyed God or did not. And I think what David understands here is that he, as the leader, there was a responsibility that he carried that deepened his sense of guilt in that his sin didn't just put himself at risk. It didn't just harm others that were nearby him in his close circle like Bathsheba and Uriah and their family members, right? I mean, there were people in Uriah's family that were going to that funeral. But it also affected the blessing of the people at large. And so David understands this and what he wants is he wants God to do good to his people, do good to Jerusalem, to Zion, 
in God's, in, in, his, in God's good pleasure. David writes for himself and the nation to enjoy right relationship with God. That's what's going on here with the sacrifices. He doesn't want just Israel involved in empty sacrificial rituals. No, he wants the whole nation to worship God with a genuine heart of contrition and brokenness and confession and embracing God in their hearts. What kind of joy are you pursuing? What do you want most in life? What kind of relationship do you have with God? God delight, does God delight in you as someone who offers him the sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit? What kind of heart attitude do you have towards sin? Are you indifferent? Or instead you should be heartbroken? Are you indifferent where instead there should be contrition? How long has it been since you have enjoyed God? I'm not just saying the, the things that he gives you in life. A blue sky, a cool breeze, a working car, a full fridge, right? Um, we could go on and on. I'm not saying enjoying that, but how long has it been since you have enjoyed the God of your salvation? There could be all sorts of reasons going on in that. I understand we're complex people of emotions, all this, right? I'm not getting into psychoanalyzing us all here, but perhaps there could be a thread of truth for you, maybe. This isn't a one-size-fits-all. Maybe you haven't experienced the joy of God because you have been treasuring sin instead of Him. David lived like that for a while. And then God sent Nathan the prophet for truth to pierce into his heart and set him free. Friend, would you let Psalm 51 perhaps be that for you? Perhaps God is calling you to turn from your love affair with sin. Maybe you don't even know God as your God of salvation. Maybe you've been trying to work off your guilt of sin through other religious expressions, or maybe you've been trying to just forget about it through pursuing sin. Friends, what you need is Psalm 51. For a God of salvation to give you his righteousness so that you with a broken and contrite heart can sing and declare the praises of a God of righteousness.